everyone, this is Jeannie Poole. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Heart Rhythm O2 Journal. Welcome to the April 2022 podcast. We start off the journal with an editorial introducing the Global Voices Initiative. Global Voices will feature video interviews on the HRS TV with electrophysiologists around the world, either talking about a paper they published in HRO2 or describing their unique challenges to practicing arrhythmia management in their global regions. In addition, we want to promote authors to submit to HRO2 studies that are reflective of unique disease disorders or papers that include sex, racial, or ethnic-specific analyses. Next December, we will publish a special issue entitled Electrophysiology and Arrhythmia Management Around the Globe, Challenges and Opportunities. We are now open to submissions for this issue and welcome both topical reviews in addition to original research. The section editor for Global Voices is Dr. Uma Srivatsa. The next paper is the 2021 HRS Educational Framework for Clinical Cardiac Electrophysiology. The purpose of this document is to provide a framework for comprehensive educational competencies for physicians and allied health professionals practicing in our field. This is an excellent and comprehensive document that describes nearly 300 competencies that will help to inform existing and proposed training programs. The first original article is titled, Experiences of Athletes with Arrhythmogenic Cardiac Conditions in Returning to Play. This is by Dr. Shapiro and colleagues. This paper discusses recommendations for return to play for athletes who have genetic and or congenital heart disease and are at high risk for sudden cardiac arrest. The authors specifically focus on the experience of the athletes and family members who must adapt to these recommendations. The authors administered a telephone survey to 30 athletes and 23 parents identified from the Yale ICD Sports Registry and the Mayo Clinic's Windland Smith Rice Genetic Heart Rhythm Clinic. The patient population included those with long QT, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and less common conditions who participated mostly in soccer, basketball, and football. 23 of the 30 athletes noted one or more barriers to return to play. These came from the first cardiologist that they saw and or school administrators. Four of the athletes were required to sign waivers, and three athletes felt to hire lawyers. Athletes and parents noted that the process was hampered by poor communication, initial physicians lacking knowledge of their specific diagnoses, and, quoting the authors, unilateral, paternalistic decision-making, as well as cynicism that physicians and schools were primarily concerned with liability. The majority of the athletes and families had an emergency action plan. The author summarized that many barriers exist when athletes with conditions with high risk for sudden cardiac death try to return to play. Shared decision-making is important and should involve the athlete and their families, and of course, future studies to investigate improving the process for future athletes are important. This paper also has a great editorial provided by Drs. Choksi and Deo. The next paper by authors Vanden Heuvel and colleagues is titled A Prospective Longitudinal Study of Health-Related Quality of Life and Psychological Well-Being After an Implantable Cardioverted Defibrillator in Patients with Genetic Heart Diseases. In a longitudinal prospective study, the authors examined the psychological function and health-related quality of life over time in patients with genetic disorders who receive an ICD. Prior to ICD implantation, Surveys were obtained, and then again at five years of follow-up. To measure psychological function, the Hospital Anxiety Depression Scale and Florida Shock Anxiety Scale were used. 
To assess the health-related quality of life, a short form 36 version 2 was used and device acceptance using the Florida Patient Acceptance Scale. 40 patients were included in this study, which included 35% females and a median age of 45 years. The authors found that the mean psychological and health-related quality of life measures were within normative ranges during follow-up. At 12 months, 33% had increased anxiety and 19% had increased depression considered at clinical levels. At five years, significant improvements were noted. Non-tertiary education and female sex predicted less improvement in mental health-related quality of life and anxiety over time, while comorbidities predicted depression and worse physical health-related quality of life. The author summarized that most patients with a genetic disorder of high sudden cardiac death risk adjust well to having an ICD, though there is a subset of patients who continue to experience anxiety, depression, and health-related quality of life outcomes. The next paper is titled, New Generation Miniaturized Insertable Cardiac Monitor with a Long Sensing Vector, Insertion, Procedure, Sensing Performance, and Home Monitoring Transmission Success in a Real-World Population by Dr. Thomas Denneke and colleagues. The objective of this study is to evaluate a novel ICM called the BioMonitor 3 for ease of implantation, complication rates, patient acceptance, and device functionality. This monitor differs from other insertable monitors with a longer sensing vector. The study included 653 patients who were implanted with the Biotronic BioMonitor 3 who are enrolled in two other ongoing studies. The authors noted that these devices could be implanted rapidly with a median time of 4 minutes. Mean R waves were 0.73 millivolts. R waves improved over the time of follow-up and noise episodes decreased. More so if the device was implanted in a vector parallel to the heart long axis versus the parasternal position. Over 274 days, 0.9% had serious adverse related events. These six patients required explantation due to device extrusion, pocket erosion, device migration, or post-implant pain. No deep infections were observed. The majority of patients thought the comfort was excellent. A gross visibility of P waves was 95.1%. The authors conclude that this ICM can be implanted quickly with low complication rates and stable sensing over time. The next paper is by Dr. Roger Friedman and colleagues. The title of this paper is Externalized Conductors and Electrical Dysfunction in Transvenous Ventricular Leads, Results of the Cardiac Lead Assessment Study. The authors present results from the Cardiac Lead Assessment Study, which is a prospective multi-center international post-market surveillance study of St. Jude Riata, Riata-ST, Dorada, and QuickSite QuickFlex Leads. Primary outcome measure was the incidence of externalized conductors and electrical dysfunction. The study includes 2,216 subjects with 2,847 study leads. Externalized conductors were observed in 30.9% of RIATA leads, 12.6% of RIATA-ST, 0.5% of DORATA, and 4.7% of QuickSight QuickFlex leads. Electrical dysfunction through 36 months was 4% for RIATA, 3.3% for RIATA-ST, 2.4% for DORATA, and 0.3% for QuickSight QuickFlex leads. 
Amongst the Riata and Riata ST leads with externalized conductors, the risk of electrical dysfunction was 6.1 and 3% respectively. Externalized conductors preceded the development of electrical dysfunction in all cases, with a mean delay of 0.8 years. Combined externalization and electrical dysfunction was not seen in the Dorada group or the quick sight quick flex leads. The time to externalization and electrical dysfunction was about seven years in both cases. No high voltage electrical shorts were observed as a cause for a failed shock. The author summarized that the risk of externalized conductors has significantly decreased with the newer leads, which underwent specific design changes. The next paper is titled, Should They Stay or Should They Go? Do We Need to Remove the Old Cardiac Implantable Electronic Device if a New System is Required on the Contralateral Side? The purpose of the study was to assess a conservative approach of abandoning the old CIED after implanting a new system on the contralateral side. Usually the old generator is explanted to avoid device interaction. The authors use an AI algorithm to identify post-implant chest x-rays that have multiple CIEDs. The authors then examine the outcomes of device interaction, abandoned CIED elective replacement indicator behavior, subsequent programming changes, and explant of the abandoned CIED. The infection risk of device removal was estimated using a validated scoring system, which was the PADET risk score. 40 patients were identified with multiple CIEDs and included in this analysis. The most common indication for contralateral implantation was venous occlusion in 27 patients. 15 of the abandoned CIED generators reached ERI, with four of them reverting to VVI-65. A single occurrence of device interaction was identified. Two generators required device programming. Also, device interactions were not observed during delivery of ICD therapy. The authors applied the PADET study risk predictor algorithm and identified that the average score was 4.5. 18 of the 40 patients, which is 45%, had a score greater than 5, estimating a risk of greater than 1% infection risk for device removal if the abandoned CIED generator had been explanted. The authors conclude that leaving the CIED in situ is a safe approach that can be considered. The next study is titled, Longitudinal Strain with Speckle Tracking Echocardiography Predicts Electroanatomic Substrate for Ventricular Tachycardia in Non-Ischemic Cardiomyopathy Patients by Dr. Trivedi and colleagues. These authors use longitudinal strain analysis derived from speckle tracking echocardiography to investigate the relationship to regions of scar in patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy. High-density electroanatomic mapping was used in 50 patients with VT to identify areas of scar. Patients were divided into three groups by EAM of the LV scar location, anteroseptal, infralateral, and epicardial scar. The authors then correlated the location of scar to regional longitudinal strain and regional strain and global longitudinal strain to scar percentage. The authors found that the regional longitudinal strain abnormalities correlated well with the EAM-detected SCAR in all patient groups. Segmental impaired longitudinal strain with low voltage showed a concordance with SCAR in approximately 75% or its border zone in about 25% of segments. And those with anteroseptal and infralateral SCAR endocardial 
Global longitudinal strain showed a strong linear correlation with endocardial bipolar scar percentage. For mid-myocardial scar, GLS correlated with unipolar scar percentage in those with anteroseptal and infraseptal locations. In those with epicardial scar, the epicardial regional longitudinal strain and GLS correlated with the epicardial bipolar scar percentage. The authors conclude that regional abnormalities on longitudinal strain analysis can predict scar location on electroanatomical mapping in patients with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. Further, that global and regional longitudinal strain correlate with scar percentage. Together, these results suggest that speckle tracking echocardiography may be used as a non-invasive tool for localizing and quantifying scar prior to electroanatomic mapping in patients undergoing VT ablation. The next paper is by Dr. Elliott and colleagues. It is called Effect of Scar and Pacing Location on Repolarization in a Porcine Myocardial Infarction Model. This is a study that examines the different responses to LV pacing on endocardial versus epicardial pacing in areas of scar using a porcine myocardial infarction model. CMR imaging to identify areas of LGE was performed in six animals followed by electroanatomic mapping of the left ventricular endocardium. The images were registered to the anatomic shell and the scar was defined by the location of the LGE. Activation recovery intervals were measured as a surrogate for action potential duration. Local ARI gradients were calculated from unipolar electrograms identified within areas of both LGE areas and in areas of healthy myocardium. The mean ARI was similar in LGE and healthy myocardium, as was ARI heterogeneity and the ARI gradients. The distance from the point of endocardial pacing to the areas of scar did not affect the ARI gradients. The findings of this study suggest that changes in the ARI may not be an intrinsic property of surviving myocytes within areas of scar. Also, that endocardial pacing close to areas of scar does not affect local repolarization. The authors note that their findings support prior computational modeling studies showing similarly that LV endocardial pacing Near scar does not affect dispersion of repolarization, which is in contrast to other studies of LV epicardial pacing. The next paper is by Dr. Kotatia and colleagues. It is titled Atrial Cardiac Magnetic Resonance Imaging in Patients with Embolic Stroke of Unknown Source Without Documented Atrial Fibrillation, the CARM-AF Study, Design and Clinical Protocol. For this study, the authors plan to use a substrate-based predictive model with CMR and baseline non-invasive ECG measures to improve the identification of AF in 92 patients enrolled who have had an embolic stroke of unknown source. All patients will undergo atrial CMR and insertion of an implantable loop recorder. The primary analysis will be performed at 12 months. Additional analyses will occur at 6 months, 2, and 3 years. These results may further inform timely initiation of oral anticoagulation for AF-related strokes. The next paper is titled, A Real-World Analysis of the Effectiveness, Resource Use, and Costs Associated with Ventricular Tachycardia Catheter Ablation in Japanese Patients Aged Equal to or Less Than 75 Years by Dr. Sojima and colleagues. This is a brief report that describes the utilization of RF catheter ablation for ventricular tachycardia in Japan between 2012 and 2018. Registry data identified 7,807 VT patients, of which 11.9% received ablation. 
Of these, 210 patients were analyzed with baseline clinical and procedural characteristics available. The authors report a fourfold growth in VT ablation with increasing use of contact force technology. Length of stay was four days over the years observed. Multivariable regression showed that patients on antiarrhythmic drugs prior to ablation was associated with an extended length of stay. The median hospitalization cost was $13,025 in U.S. dollars. The authors provide the rates of different types of complications in the post-VT ablation follow-up time. Freedom from all-cause and VT-related readmission at one year was found to be 67.1% and 79.1% respectively. The authors conclude that this real-world Japanese longitudinal database revealed an acceptable safety profile, readmission rate, reablation rate, and healthcare resource utilization for VT ablation. This issue finishes up with three research letters. The first one is titled Clinical Validation of a Novel Smartwatch for Automated Detection of Atrial Fibrillation by Dr. Batisher and colleagues. The second is entitled Virtual Patient Workshops, a Tool for Education, Community, and Empowerment in Patients with Postural Orthostatic Tachycardia Syndrome by Dr. Laird Gillen and colleagues. The third one is titled Diverse Stakeholder Engagement at the Heart of Co-Designing Cardiac Arrest Care by Dr. Paratz and colleagues. And this ends the HRO2 podcast for the April 2022 issue. I hope you enjoyed this, and thank you for listening.